Okay, everybody, I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn it, open it to Mark chapter 9, okay? Go to Mark's Gospel. Sometimes I call them biographies because that's what they are. There are four of them that open up your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four men who chronicled the life, the teaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the part you may not know. Matthew wrote his gospel, Luke wrote his, and John wrote his, but Peter actually wrote the gospel of Mark. It's called Mark because Mark penned it. Peter was a fisherman, probably didn't have a lot of writing and reading skills, but under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he dictated the gospel of Mark, and John Mark wrote it down. Each gospel portrays Jesus Christ in a slightly different way. For instance, the gospel of John portrays Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus, according to John, was God in a human body. All right? Luke portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. Luke wants you to understand that Jesus was 100% human. Along with being God, he was 100% human. Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as the Son of David, meaning Jesus is fully capable to assume the throne of Israel. All right? And then comes Peter. And Peter portrays Jesus as a servant, the servant of God. One of the things that sets Mark apart from the others, it is the earliest of the Gospels. Mark's Gospel was written before any of the others. And in its brief 16 chapters, the Apostle Peter portrays Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the next King of Israel, as a servant. We're going to talk about that today. Of course, today is a very big day if you're a football fan. Even if you're not a big football fan, you know what today is, right? It's been all over the television for the last two weeks. I mean, we've sat and listened to one sportscaster after another talk about and build up the Super Bowl, the big spectacle that is tonight. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Super Bowl in America will generate $14.6 billion in 24 hours. All of the purchases that we will make for the Super Bowl to ready our family, to ready for our party, the jerseys, all the gear we buy, $14.6 billion. If you buy merchandise related to the Super Bowl, in other words, it's got that logo on it, it's stitched on there, it's glued on there, it's ironed on there, you are contributing hundreds of millions of dollars to our national economy. Something I found pretty interesting, two weeks ago when the Rams won the NFC Championship, they had no sooner won the championship game, which means they're going to the Super Bowl, follow me, and in the following 10 days, the Los Angeles Rams sold one year worth of team gear. In 10 days, they sold as many jerseys, as many hats, as many t-shirts, as much gear as they typically would sell in one year. Americans consume more food on Super Bowl Sunday than any other day of the year except for Thanksgiving. I read that tonight we will consume, as Americans, 8 million pounds of guacamole. That's incredible to me. 56 years ago... The average ticket to the Super Bowl, the very first Super Bowl, was a whopping $6. If you want to go to tonight's game, it's going to cost you nearly $9,000 for the average ticket to Super Bowl 56. The Super Bowl is going to be broadcast 
in 188 countries all around the world, making it indeed a worldwide spectacle. I don't want to try and oversell it. I don't have to oversell it because it is a very big deal. Now, I want to get you in on some of this number crunching because I had a good time in my office this week kind of plowing through the numbers, and I've come up with a multiple choice quiz to test your football Super Bowl knowledge. I'm going to give you a number And then I'm going to give you three choices as to what that number represents with regard to the Super Bowl. For instance, here's the number, 72, 72. 72 represents, A, the number of times Tom Brady has played in the Super Bowl. B, the number of times my Cleveland Browns have not played in the Super Bowl. Or C, the number of footballs that will be used in tonight's game. See, that blew me away. 72 footballs for tonight's game. Here's another number 14,500. Okay, you got that number in your mind? 14,500. That number represents A, the number of times Al Michaels' pacemaker is going to fire during the telecast. It represents B, the number of people who will remain seated for a typically miserable halftime show. Or C, the tonnage of chips that will be consumed by Americans during the game. 14,500 tons of chips. That blows me away. All right, here's the last one. This is the biggest number of all. 27 billion. 27 billion. That represents A, the people in the world have never heard of the Super Bowl. That represents B, the number of times Americans are going to scratch their heads trying to figure out what LVI means. Or C, that's the estimated calories consumed tonight in America during the telecast. 27 billion. You people eat way too much. (laughs) Tonight's game is indeed a spectacle. Oh, for your information, I've used the term Super Bowl nine times so far, if you're keeping track at home, all right? It's the biggest game of the year. It's the climax of the season. It's a gigantic spectacle No doubt. Countless man hours and superhuman heroic efforts are required to make a run for the Super Bowl. It's not easy to get to the big game, no matter how easy Tom Brady makes it look. The winners of tonight's game are going to be named world champions. It's going to change their life forever. It will change their destiny. The loser will have a solid year to ponder and consider what might have gone wrong. For at least a week now, I've turned on the NFL Network or ESPN, and the pundits have calculated, and they've demonstrated, and they've speculated, and they've cogitated, and they've meditated, trying to tell us who's going to win and why. And the majority of them will probably be wrong come Monday morning. I know two weeks ago, when the Cincinnati Bengals defeated the Kansas City Chiefs, not one of the pregame announcers picked the Bengals to win. Imagine... If you and I could be wrong in our jobs 50% of the time, I wonder if I'd even have a job left. Over and over and over, they've talked about what it takes to win, what it takes to make a champion. And the fact is, no one really knows. No one really knows exactly the blueprint, the formula, if you will, to make your team a world champion. The best we can do is speculate. The best we can do is guess. Well, that's not true when it comes to certain principles in your Bible. When it comes to greatness in the eyes of God, Jesus couldn't be more clear than he is in Mark chapter 9. 
It's going to sound very simple at the outset. Everybody can get it. But boy, it can be difficult to accomplish. I want you to read with me Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 30. The Bible says they left that place. That's Jesus and the disciples. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Jesus did this quite often. He'd find seclusion because he needed to make sure that his closest followers understood his mission. Jesus was telling them, this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen to me, and this is how it's going to go. It was critical that they understood his mission. So again, he's doing it again. He said to them, the Son of Man, there's that term, is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. The Son of Man reflects his humanity. It's used 14 times in Mark's 16 chapters. Luke uses it more than two times that amount. Jesus was trying to emphasize his humanity. It originates back in the prophetic book of Daniel. Daniel used the term son of man to point to the coming Messiah. So Jesus used the term of himself, but it always points to his humanity. The fact that God in human form was going to experience humiliation. He was going to experience torture, suffering, and even death. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. That's the mission. That's what he wanted the disciples to understand. But they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, they didn't understand because in their minds, Messiah was not supposed to die. The hero is not supposed to die. The hero is not supposed to go away. Messiah is not supposed to die. The reason they were afraid to ask him about it is because earlier, one chapter earlier in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked him about it. Or excuse me, Peter asked Jesus about it. Jesus said, this is my mission. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to execute me, but three days later I'll rise again. And Peter spoke up and said, no, 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 we're not going to let that happen. And what did Jesus do? He scolded him. That's the famous passage, get behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. So that's why they didn't ask. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. They were embarrassed. They were convicted because while Jesus is pouring out his heart saying, man, I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to be handed over to sinful man and they're going to torture me. These guys are arguing over who was most important. Now, again, maybe they were arguing about that because earlier in chapter 9, we read about the transfiguration. And only three of the disciples got to participate. Peter, James, and John were the only three of the disciples who got to witness the transfiguration. So maybe they assumed that because they had that special trip privilege, that somehow they were greater than the others. And so they're arguing as they're heading to their destination. Verse number 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Wait, read that again. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. In other words, anyone who wants to be crowned world champion has to serve others. Anyone who wants to win has to serve others. This didn't make any sense to them, just like it doesn't make any sense to us. How in the world can you be first by being last? How in the world do you win by serving other people? But when you think about it, Jesus modeled that many times over throughout his ministry. That was the model of Jesus. He was the leader, but he was a servant. 
He had all the power, but he served others. Keep reading. Verse 36. He took a little child whom he had placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So let's talk about this. Today's a game about winning. Today's a day about the big game and winning and losing. What does it take, according to Jesus, to win? Let's examine God's game plan for success. What does God call winning? Well, first thing you need to know is it's an anti-cultural message, not an anti-self message. When Jesus said, if you want to be first, you got to make yourself last, he's not telling you that you don't matter. He's not telling you that you have little self-worth. When Jesus said, if you want to win, you have to go to the back of the line, Jesus is not telling you to self-depreciate. No, the message of Jesus is anti-cultural, not anti-self. You see, the disciples, just like you and me, they defined greatness based upon the culture in which they lived. In order to be great or in order to win, you wanted others to serve you. That was winning in their mind, just like it's winning in our mind. But God never instructed his followers to lie down on the ground and let somebody walk all over them. You see, some mistakenly confuse humility with self-depreciation. Putting yourself down, allowing others to take advantage of you, is not biblical humility. Let me illustrate. When I was a little kid and my family would drive to church on Sundays, there was always a man standing on the front steps of the church. He's standing there handing out programs. He's standing there smiling at greeters or greeting new people. If an older person got out of the car, he might walk out there and make sure they got to the steps and then on up the steps and into the church. He'd see a mom with her hands loaded and trying to bring the kids in, and he'd go out there and carry a child. He was never afraid to set up the chairs for the spaghetti suppers or the dinner on the grounds kind of things. He'd stay late, take out the trash, mop the floors. No work was too big. No work was too small. This guy was willing to serve. Now, from my understanding, as a kid, he was a pretty successful businessman. I'm sure he had better things to do on Sundays than to do what he did. Nevertheless, he just served. That's what Jesus is describing in Mark chapter 9. God's game plan, you see, centers on a message that's anti-cultural because culture is all about self. I mean, just think about the people in the news. Think about what we see on the television. It's all about me. It's all about my rights. It's all about what's coming to me. We admire self. We stick up for self. We defend self. We think about self. On and on and on it goes. And Jesus comes in with a completely countercultural message. In fact, Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, We live in a confused tailspin. Though preoccupied and smug with our own needs, we are continually more empty and desperately lonely. Isn't it ironic? The more Americans try and stick up for self, the more we fall in love with self, the more lonely and desperate we seem to become. Like the Lord's closest followers his disciples, in the midst of overwhelming sacrifice. He's just explained his sacrifice. They were consumed with self. That is not part of God's winning game plan. Now, I need to caution you and tell you how this works. If you're going to take the words of Jesus to heart, and you're going to embrace this countercultural message, if you're going to try and be first by making yourself last, 
you better get acquainted with the concept of balance because this doesn't work without it. You see, so many answers to our questions involve or incorporate balance. How many times have you had a conversation about this or that, and finally you arrive at a conclusion, well, the only thing to do is to try and balance the two. In the church, we try and balance grace with truth. Because sometimes people need grace. you got to be patient. you got to be flexible. you got to be willing to turn the other cheek, look the other way. That's grace. But sometimes people need to hear the truth. At this church, we try and balance outreach with spiritual development. We don't want outreach to overpower or overshadow spiritual development within the church. We don't want one to cancel out the other, so what do we do? We try and balance the two. Listen, church, when it comes to serving, if you're going to take Jesus at his word, you're going to have to learn to balance passion with commitment. That's how it's done. You see, sometimes you will serve because you're compassionate about what you're doing. I mean, you love the idea of working with children, so you sign up for Kids Jam. You love the idea of influencing students, so you drive a van on a ski trip. You love the idea of serving your church, so you sign up for the lawn crew. You love the idea of working with babies, so you spend two Sundays a month back there with our two-year-olds. But passion doesn't do it all. Sometimes passion will carry you, but other times it's commitment. In fact, here's the way I would say it. Every successful effort hinges on balance. Balance between our passion for the cause and our commitment to the contract. There are days when servants of Christ serve out of passion. They can't wait, but there are also days when they serve out of total 100% commitment. You see, your success at any endeavor, especially when it comes to serving others, is largely dependent upon the passion and the emotion you have for the cause or the mission and then the commitment to be faithful and true to that cause. So if we put all that together, here's what it looks like. Here's God's game plan. It's anti-cultural, and it requires a balanced attack. At this church, we've said for a long time that members at Grace are ministers. This church doesn't simply have two or three ministers on staff. We have hundreds of ministers. If you are a regular attender or a member of this church, I expect you to serve. We expect you to serve. It's one of the things that sets this work apart from others. Every Sunday at any given moment, there are more than 130, maybe 150, pushing 150 service opportunities at Grace Community Church. That's from the nursery care to the lawn maintenance crew, to small group leadership, to working with our children, to teaching, the list goes on and on and on. Those who take on that role, those who serve others, are seeking to balance their passion for the work with their commitment to the cause. Here's what Galatians 6 verse 9 says, do not grow weary in doing good, because in the proper time you're going to reap a reward if you do not lose faith. Sometimes passion gets the job done. Sometimes commitment gets the job done. You know, after I graduated school and I came home to that same church, my home church in Florida, there's that guy standing there again. He's handing out programs and he's smiling and greeting people. I'm sure it bothered him when people tried to take advantage of his generosity. I'm sure it bothered him when he was called upon to clean up a mess in the children's bathroom. I'm sure it irritated him when somebody tried to get over on him 
by taking advantage of something. He would drive his van to the activities. He'd carry around people's kids, their students, their high schoolers. If the grass needed mowing or his business could assist the ministry of the church, he was always willing to help. I mean, for nearly two decades, I watched him serve. And not because he was always passionate about it, I'm sure, but because somehow he found the balance between the two. Now, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to jump in feet first? Everybody has good reasons for their uninvolvement. In fact, that's number two. Our excuse for uninvolvement. The game plan itself reveals our reasons for remaining on the sideline. You see, there are loopholes. This is not a perfect process. The church is far from perfect. Always has been, always will be. There are many, many people outside the church today who wouldn't set foot in here because a long time ago, someone like me in a church like this hurt them somehow. We got to change that. We got to fix that. There are good reasons people don't serve. Number one, they've been hurt. Somebody took advantage of their generosity. So they just don't serve anymore. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. That's why we got to be careful not to take advantage of people who serve. Here's number two. They've been ignored. They don't serve anymore because the recognition was being handed out, the applause was happening, and no one ever mentioned their name, and it hurt their feelings. Here's number three. We don't serve because we've been frustrated. You're a pretty strong-willed person. You want to serve. You're passionate about it, but you want to do it your way. And somebody's telling you to do it another way. And so you'd rather not serve. And number four, we don't serve because we've been misinformed. We believe the prominent message in our culture. The way to win is to be served, not to serve others, not according to Jesus. Look, let me show you what's at stake. Very quickly, one last passage, and I'll wrap this up. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me show you something. This is what's at stake Service matters, according to Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else now is building on it. Paul went to Corinth. He started a church. He laid the foundation. When it could stand on its own, he left to start another, and now someone else is building on that same foundation. But each one should build with care, verse 11. For no one can lay the foundation other than the one that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. In other words, when you serve, you're either building with something precious that will last or something futile that will not. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. That is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. That's not a heaven and hell judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. That is a service judgment. One day, every follower of Jesus Christ is going to stand before Jesus himself. And all our actions of service are going to be tried by fire at the judgment seat of Christ. And what remains becomes our reward. Keep reading. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, then the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. According to Paul, there are rewards for serving. According to Paul, Jesus knew what he was talking about. The way to get ahead is to put yourself behind. The way to win is to serve others. 
Let me just highlight four quick things. Here's reward number one. All rewards are the result of a conscious choice. That according to verse 13. If anyone chooses to build, you get the privilege of deciding what's most important in this one precious life. Jesus said serving is most important. Here's number two. All rewards are based on quality, not quantity. Paul used that word himself, verse 13. The day is going to bring it to light. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. According to Jesus, serving others is quality work. And number three, most rewards will be received in heaven, not on earth. The day, he wrote, is going to bring it to light. You may receive a reward here. You might receive a return now or soon based upon your willingness to serve someone else. I mean, it does feel kind of good to help someone, doesn't it, to serve others? But trust me, you will receive a grand eternal reward on that day. And number four, no reward is postponed or will be forgotten. If what he has built, verse 14, survives, then he will receive his reward. No reward that's postponed, that we don't get now, is going to be forgotten. That means even the smallest gesture on your part to serve someone else, God has noticed. He wrote it down. You're going to be rewarded. According to Mark chapter 9, serving is the way to get ahead. Again, it seems counterintuitive to us. It doesn't make sense to us because like many biblical principles that are true, it's countercultural. We live in a culture that serves self, not others. Serving others doesn't come naturally to most of us. If I talk to you about winning, for most of us, winning means getting to the front of the line as fast as possible and staying as long as possible. But not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, greatness is a race, not to the front of the line, but to the back. Greatness is a race to the back of the line. The man I've been referring to today that I watched growing up serve others just turned 86 years old last month. He belongs to another church now and has for a long time, but his MO is still the same. He mops the floors. He cleans up after your kids. He pulls bubble gum from the carpet. He cleans the windows. Anything that's needed or necessary, he's willing to serve. I got to be honest with you. I've never seen another man like this man. I love this man because this man is a servant, and that servant is my father. And for 27 years, I've stood in the spotlight at this church. I've stood on this stage and under these lights. But I'm sincere when I say one day on the day that Paul describes, I'll probably take a back seat to him because he served his entire life just like Jesus commanded. Serving or the life of serving others isn't all it's cracked up to be. My father can tell you, it's a whole lot more. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the privilege of serving this, your church, and of knowing all of these servants who serve others. Father, serving is not perfect work. It's not squeaky clean. It's difficult sometimes. But Father, I thank you that there are so many servants among us. Father, bless them. Encourage and guide them. Make this a church loaded full of servants, I pray. Go with us now to our homes. Bless our afternoons as we enjoy one another's presence. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you enjoyed the game tonight. Go Rams!